John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed Omnibus Addenda, Volume 15, Entry 495.NU2653, Certificate Number 28876, The Four-Color Map Problem. Just a quick trip way back in time to this old show. Yeah, this is, uh, this is a year and a half ago. Well, if you listen to last month's Addenda show, we had somebody write in and ask, how many colors do you need to color in a map? If, oh, right. if there's like political connections between some of the territories, for example, if right. one is an exclave or enclave of the other. Right. Uh, or, yeah. This was a colonial map problem. Yeah. And I had never considered the real world four color map problem where sometimes, you know, the US and uh, Alaska and Hawaii have to be the same color on the map. Right. Does that sometimes cause a problem? And I suspected that it did. And my intuition was you might need as many colors as there are political territories. And that turns out to be true. We heard from, uh, well, first of all, Joshua pointed out that this is true on modern maps of Liechtenstein, that the individual, what does Liechtenstein have? Liechtenstein borders Switzerland and Austria. Right, but within it, it has states or provinces or municipalities. I guess there are 11 municipalities into which um, Liechtenstein is divided, and they have very complicated and not contiguous borders. And as a result, it has been proven that you need five different colors to color in a map of Liechtenstein if you get, you know, uh, municipalities matching with their exclaves and enclaves. It's astonishing to me that Liechtenstein would sure because it's the size of how would you how would you fit even one municipality into Liechtenstein? The largest city has a population of less than six thousand people. But there you go. Liechtenstein is about the biggest state or the municipality is 10 square miles. Oh. So Liechtenstein all told is maybe what 40 or 50 square miles. It's the size of a, a major city. Yeah. Or a, a re- yeah, regular of. size U S city. Uh, it's probably a little bigger than that. Actually. I'm not going to look it up. You know what? You and, know what? And, and I'm not doing an addenda to this show where somebody <laughs> writes in and tells me how big Liechtenstein actually is. I've been to Liechtenstein. I know how big it is. Did you go through it? I did. Did you have to make a side trip? Did, yes. Went in one side and came out the other uh, in order to, really, in order to have done it. Uh, no other reason. That's the reason. That's A lot of these countries are making their living. Some of these little countries are making their living on basically being a big duty free store. Yeah. Others are just knowing that people want to cross them off. Liechtenstein was a place that made its money uh, letting you park your ill-gotten gains in their banks. Uh, but I think... Uh, I think that became less popular among the, you know, if, if the Swiss banks weren't, didn't have enough discretion for you, you'd go to the Liechtensteinian banks. Well, it's for hipsters. Yeah. You don't want to have a bank in Zurich. That's what everybody does. Right. Uh, but in Vaduz. Vaduz. And Jesse wrote in to say that, yes, my intuition is correct. You could need as many colors as there are political entities. Really? And here's how you have to imagine a degenerate case where every single country has a little enclave inside every other country. Right. Like an embassy. Sure. Right? Assume a world where every country has an embassy inside of every other. And if you actually did, well, first of all, that's not true. Like I'm sure uh, Mozambique does not actually have 
uh, an uh, embassy uh, in Brunei or whatever, <laughs> Guyana. But let's imagine a world where every country does have a little extraterritorial embassy in every other, and that a map maker wants to get so precise that he will make that little dot of pink pink. Right. Uh, you would need as many colors as there are nations on Earth, because obviously... That's more than 200, each, right? Each, yeah, it'd be around 200. Each, each country would need to have its own color that would be different than all the little dots scattered around in its embassy row. Wow, it would be like a Sherwin-Williams... Uh, it would like chip book. You'd be getting away from real colors, and you'd be more into coastal fog. Right. Well, well now, now you're just naming colors that are in a J. Crew catalog. Entry three three zero dot JB one eight one zero. Certificate number three six seven two eight. The Delorean cocaine bust. This is another addendum to an addendum, or what are we going to call those? Metadenda? Yeah, addenda addend, squared. Addendendendum? Addendendendum. Uh, in the last show, we mentioned that uh, legislation passed in 2015 was actually going to allow auto manufacturers in the U.S. to make, to sell assembled kit cars. Yeah. Right? Right. Which means there's a bunch of DeLorean... Parts sitting around. Right. Hopefully with much better engines. And DeLorean wants to start selling them again, which right. this new law would allow them to do in very, with a lot of loopholes. You've got to be a, an actual manufacturer that existed at the time. Uh, you can only sell 300 a year or so. You know, it's, it's, um, it's very, very uh, shaped by lobbyists, it sounds like. And uh, we mentioned that this was new and coming. And Scott wrote in just last week to say, to explain why nothing had changed, because even though this legislation passed in 2015, it was actually held up by approvals in the NHTSA, the National Highway Traffic Safety, Safety Ad Administration, Administration, or similar. Sure. Apparently, uh, they had dragged their feet throughout the last year of the Obama administration and the entire Trump era, and he says they just approved it last week. Wow. So, like, and I think January 19th is when the press release was, which means the last day of the outgoing administration. Hip, hip, hooray. Decided to legalize kit cars. So, one of the great things about the Biden era is going to be all the new DeLoreans. I'm so excited about it. You know, I'm someone that, at one level, fundamentally believes that we should be transitioning to a carless society and, uh, and banish the internal combustion engine to the trash heap of history. But as long as we have them. Let's make DeLoreans. Let's make sure they time travel. Let's hot rod some DeLoreans with some 5.0 motors. Entry 400.1CH2508. Certificate number 30371. Election ties. I'm pretty sure we didn't put this in the last omnibus. I hope we didn't. Uh, there was a tied election. In November. It was not the presidential election, as we feared. Right. That, I think that was something we talked about on the show. Wouldn't this be funny if this comes out? And it's w within five votes. Yeah. At, the, at the end of November, as the election aside. There was one tied election. It was for the mayor, the mayorship, the mayorality. Mayorality. What's the noun? Of Dickinson, Texas, which I believe is a Houston suburb. Both Sean Skipworth and Jennifer Lawrence... Jennifer Lawrence, yeah. huge fan. Amazing that she had the free time. <laughs> I know. And she campaigned covered in her blue body makeup mm. from the X-Men movies. Here, here. I would vote for her. Sure. I mean, that's... Why did this... What, what does old Skipjack have to, have to do to get that many votes? He also wore blue body makeup, and it almost cost him the election. Right. Uh, he's not in as good a shape. Uh, they... Um, they both... They, there were 2,020 votes cast, and after several counts, they each received exactly 1,010 votes to be mayor of Dickinson, Texas. It's so amazing to me that there are so many elected offices where you need a thousand votes and you're the mayor of a town. And I just wonder like, what was I, why did I run for Seattle city council? Why did I not run for the mayor of Dickinson, Texas? You could become the mayor of Squim, Washington, where, um, where they've got a, a QAnon mayor right now. I, I have I have long considered moving to Twisp and running for for sheriff. Because if you can't, you know, a lot of these elections, you would need 300 votes. Right. And if you can't talk 300 people into voting for you with your abundant free time and uh, and uh, silver tongue, yeah, 
what are you even doing with your life? I know. I mean, I, you, 300 people, you could, you could in a long weekend. The dumbest, most boring people I know could get 300 votes, I think. It just means that people, and a lot of these towns, I think, don't get mayors. I think that's why this QAnon guy actually is running Squim is because there were no mayoral candidates. So just somebody from the city council got elevated. And uh, yeah, everybody should be mayor, honestly. Everyone should be mayor at one point or another. In this case, both could not be mayor. And the local law allowed for uh, a random choice, as often happens. What? Really? It's just the roll of the dice? It did not specify the method. So they decided to draw ping pong balls uh, with, you know, two ping pong balls with names sharpied. Oh, I'm so grateful that it was ping pong balls. Out of a hat. And uh, as a result, Sean Skipworth is now the mayor of Dickinson, oh, Texas. I was rooting for Jennifer Lawrence. Well, of course, everyone was rooting for Jennifer Lawrence. Uh, she was so good in Winter's Bone, Silver Linings Playbook. Uh, She's a very versatile actor. I even saw the one where she invented the Swiffer or something because I was on a very long plane flight. Mm -hmm. Mm. She's delightful Mm -hmm. in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, But guess what? She's not the mayor of Dickinson, Texas. Boo. Well, I hope Sean Skipworth does a good job. Listen, he got New York Times coverage because his election was tied. No incoming mayor of Dickinson has had the kind of media honeymoon that he will. Tell me two other things that you think should be decided by ping pong ball. (laughs) Uh, obviously, uh, Olympic games of ping pong. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Every single one, in my opinion, <laughs> but also people's sexiest man alive. Hey. Every man in America who feels sexy should be able to send in his name on a ping pong ball. Write their name on a ping pong and ball. And it should be one of those, um, the lottery, uh, what are those machines right, called that big, stir up the ping pong balls? Big wire, wire Ferris wheels. You should have one of those and some- A giant one. And some, um- some beauty queen, some local uh, local weather lady or, or, or beauty queen, Miss Apple Harvest or whatever, should reach in and pull out America's sexiest man. I'm going to I'm going to coat my ping pong ball in a thin layer of enamel, oh. so that it is just slightly weighted, but still looks like a ping pong ball, and it's going to fall to the bottom, and I will be people's sexiest man and the mayor of Dickinson, Texas. Yeah, it'll go together. And the Olympic uh, ping pong ball winner, gold medalist. Is what they call them. Entry 1408.DE0206. Certificate number 31448. Wampum. We heard from Daffod, who has a wampum story. Hmm. He, he spells it the Welsh way, which... Um, wampum or Daffod? He spells wampum the Welsh way. Double, <laughs> instead of a W, it's two L's. Right. I don't think there is a Welsh spelling, but eh, maybe. <laughs> well, how, how does he spell his name? D-A-F-Y-D-D. Oh, yeah, okay. Could be a David with an affectation. I'm sure many of our many of America's Daffids are currently Davids with affectations, or he could be a proud Welsh American. I, I imagine that, yeah, it's, it's, it's probably pronounced David. Is that, is that how you say it? I mean, Welsh pronunciation is not... What it seems. Well, it doesn't look like it's supposed to. It's. It doesn't look like it's said. Well, it, if it's, it's not what it se- as she is spoke. If it's not what it seems, maybe you should. Uh, maybe you're wrong. Then you thought it was David, but it's not what it seems. It's actually Daffod. Right. Okay. Mm, or interesting. Or it doubles back again. Who knows? Dawood. Maybe it's Dawood. The Welsh are tricky that way. Dagwood. Dagwood. It's pronounced Dagwood after the sandwich. Uh, I know he is not Welsh American because he is actually from the Hamptons. Uh, he's on from Long Island. Why can people from Long Island not be Welsh American? Oh, he can be Welsh American. Sorry, but he cannot be Welsh. He cannot be Welsh. I misspoke. Right. Uh, I know many Welsh Americans, including I'm sitting with one right now, and two two out of two people on this podcast are Welsh Americans. Right. And neither of us are named like Llewellyn or something weird. No, but you know my family name was not Roderick until 1742 when it was anglicized by our. Colonial masters. That's still a long time ago. Before before that, it had like eleven H's in it. That's well, still sure a long time ago, but you know, never forget. <laughs> it was literally two hundred and fifty <laughs> years before Nevermind came out. Never forget. Never forget. <laughs> uh, here is David Ordaffid's uh, wampum story from Long Island. Uh, in his as, as his road uh, as Clamshell Avenue goes through his town, uh, it. Uh, descends to a creek and then empties into Three Mile Harbor. And along the slopes, as the uh, as Clamshell Avenue lowers towards the waves, 
there it was the source of the name of the avenue piles and piles of clamshells it's a midden whitened by the sun yes what we would call a we have oyster and mussel middens here in the northwest mm-hmm. right um, but each of these had a small hole drilled through the middle because it was the dumping ground for the local wampum industry although i don't know why they're dumping them they're not still they're not still currency the it was the the montaukett indians after they took the good part away the the rest of it was garbage i guess but isn't the good part the shell what do you take out of it well if they if there was a hole drilled in it they must have taken the oh, good colored I, I see the hole it became the wampum yeah okay this makes sense i thought the whole shell was the wampum and the hole was for stringing it or something no they must have they must have uh they must have felt like they drilled out the the good the good color. The best color. Yeah. Uh, and those clamshells had lain there for just hundreds of years. They'd been there for centuries. And, you know, every time you drive down Clamshell Avenue in his town heading to the beach, or I guess his dad would always point out the clamshells and say, there they are, perhaps in a Welsh accent. There they are. There they no. are, look you. <laughs> uh, he said he went back last year and the clamshells are now... Uh, no longer visible, but it's only because the area is underground, uh, under, underground, oh. o- overgrown with, with, uh, Oh, but they're still there. Presumably under the briar, there are still, uh, piles of 300 year old wampum, uh, leavings. That but, is but such But he was a, not interested in crawling through the tick infested undergrowth to get to them. Such a dad thing to say every year when you drive over the, the, Wampum middens. But do you are you like me? Do you find there yourself doing it that oh, you absolutely. always just say the same thing in the car when you go by the same thing? And what what is the urge? Is it because we saw our dads do it and we're, we'll be damned if we're not going to make others suffer? Have I told you the story? I, 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 my dad picked me up from the airport in Anchorage one time and we were driving home and he kind of took the long way and we're driving down Fireweed Avenue and as we pass my old elementary school, North Star Elementary... You know, I'm in my 30s at this point. My dad points out the window and goes, "That's where you went to elementary school." Like he's getting, he's doing the like read the street signs thing. But he's telling you a place that you would know better than him. Yeah, there. That's where you went to elementary school. No, oh, thanks. <laughs> thanks for the tour. Entry one three five seven dot is four zero three one. Certificate numbers two zero eight zero zero. Ultra running. We continue to get notes on ultra running from ultra runners. So many. Uh, it feels like omnibus attracts ultra runners. No, I just think that people with that kind of hobby like to tell other people they have that kind of oh, hobby. Oh, that's right. Like <laughs> if you're at a party, how do you know there's a fireman there? Because I'll be sure and tell you. Uh, the uh, two notes that we got, I thought it, it, I, was, I was interested in Michael's take on why ultra running is often more attractive than marathons. Oh. Mm-hmm. Uh for many reasons, they, they tend to be less, um, I guess, tightly organized or run, which means lower. It's just easier to get in, even though the, the run is more grueling, all the, the gauntlets, the regulatory gauntlets to get in are much easier. Right. You don't have to a- apply and all that right. it's, garbage. The entry fees are cheaper. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I thought this was funny. Parking is often easier. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine getting into 50-mile races just because it's easier to park than at the 26-mile one? <laughs> I also think probably that to win an ultra running race is a thing you do only for oneself. There's no, it's not like there's a big purse. It's not like you even make it into the newspaper. So to cheat, to be somebody that only ran 20 miles, but like, you know, come, tries to come in first would be absolutely meaningless in an ultra running race. Like, why would you do it? Well, this is what we heard from David, who actually runs 100 milers. And he says most ultra races don't actually reward uh, finishers with medals. Really? Instead, and I, don't, and I think that means nobody, you know, there's really no different award for finishing first, second, third. The whole point is, is to run it. 100 miles because, my gosh, you know. And in his case, he says, most, the most common prize is you get a belt buckle. Did you know this? No. I had no idea. It's like, it's like a rodeo. <laughs> well, it's more, uh, uh, there's more utility to a belt buckle than a medal. A medal doesn't keep your pants up. I think after you've run 100 miles, you need, you're, you're going to have to tie a rope around your pants to keep them up. But the thing is, you would only run one race, for sure. Then you've got a belt buckle, and you're good. I have a large collection of belt buckles. So you can't wear more than one at once. It's a problem. It is definitely a problem. I guess it depends on how fashionable 
the different races, the respective races buckles are to be like, I feel more like uh, wearing a uh, a 60K today. Uh, Yeah, I guess it's anything like that uh, that is a trophy that you are meant to use and not display. After you have two of them, it's no longer... If you had one ultra runner belt buckle, you wore it all the time. But if you have three of them, it's not a thing you're going to switch in and out, right? You're not going to be like, yeah, today I feel like the Susanville race is like how I want to go to the IR or the REI, not the IRA. I'm but, going to my IRA meeting. I mean, honestly, once I have two pairs of shoes in the same niche or two jackets in the same niche, I will generally just wear the favorite one. You seem like someone who would, once he got a favorite pair of shoes, might buy a second identical pair of shoes. I have done that as well. I tried to do it as recently as last month and Nike does not wear, make my running shoes anymore. I had Boo. to, I had to buy the nearest equivalent and that as a dad who just wants to buy the same thing again, that really hurt. I have a really good pillow that I got from Ikea. And when I went to get it again, they stopped making it. And there are entire websites devoted to people super mad that Ikea stopped making this one particular pillow. You got to get one to rock and one to stock. Entry 351.AC2830, certificate number 25380, Dingbad Apartments. Briefly in that, uh, kind of the opposite of the topic of that entry, we mentioned deeply functionalist architecture. Mm-hmm. And as a re- I can't remember how it came up, but we talked about Philip Johnson's glass house. Yes. That he built out in the woods of what New Canaan, Connecticut, I think. There's a glass house over yonder, and we speculated as to some of the downsides of living in a glass house. I mean, you can't proverbially. There's, there's something you can't do. Can't listen to that. Uh, you can that throw Billy Joel record. You can throw ping pong balls, right? And you'll you'll be fine. You'll be fine. You can even shoot them out of a ping pong ball gun. The uh, but we we wondered where the rest where the bathroom. And where the water heater are in a fully glass house. Got to be in the middle, right? The core. We were doing a bit. We did not expect an answer. (laughs) (laughs) However, we heard from Amanda, an art history student, who uh, was, uh, when she was living in Boston and had to travel to Pittsburgh for a wedding, uh, decided to stop in and see the glass house. And she sent a picture of the glass house, which includes the large brick cylinder in the middle. You're correct. It does have a core. A large brick cylinder in the middle that has both the bathroom and the chimney. These are the only non-glass surfaces in the house. Both the bathroom and the chimney. Do you think they're in the same room? Like you just go, you go in this, ra- you go in the brick cylinder and then it's just a, a round wallless room that has a chimney in the middle and a toilet at the edge? Probably in the, in the dead of winter when your single pane glass house <laughs> cannot be heated above 50 degrees. Do you think he slept in there? You go sleep in the bathtub. <laughs> he actually sent, uh, he, Philip Johnson did not always sleep in his house. Uh, Amanda sent a picture of the brick house across the courtyard from the glass house. A brick. He lives house. in a glass house. Well, why don't you send me these pictures? Why am I not seeing them? I can send them to you. Fine. I want to see these. Look, imagine a house that's not glass, okay, but made of bricks. I can do it. I'm doing it now. He finished the brick house first, and it actually contains all the, uh, you know, the support systems, the heating and the HVAC, you know, all the utility stuff you would need for both houses, but. They would be unsightly if placed in the glass house. So what, they're across it, it, the way. He pumps it over. I guess. Yeah. Uh, maybe the hot water heater is there. And uh, oh, I like that brick cylinder. It's got a. It's also got a fireplace. A wood burning fireplace. Yes. It's. But I don't see where you put your toilet in there. On the other side. It's oh on the wait. Back. So this little square brick, maybe completely the, windowless house. Maybe the toilet is in the fi- is in the fireplace. You cannot both have a fire and use the restroom. Oh, I see. Yeah. Uh, well, so this brick house over yonder, uh, it looks like a like a like a power station. It, or it does. looks like a it little does. place, you know, like a like a municipal. Which trunk is kind station. of funny. You can have you can have the house of the future, but um, only if you have enough land to also have a bunker. Put all your infrastructure in your bunker across the way, right. and uh, the brick house came in handy because uh, Philip Johnson built them in the late '40s and was gay. Mm-hmm. And did not want to have gentlemen callers in a glass house oh, at so a they, time they when... they met him in the brick house? Yeah. The brick house was for... Um, 
For, yeah. For, exactly. Hmm. Entry 1332.PR2502. Certificate number 39453. B. Traven. An entry about the many different uh, identities of the author of The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Yes. Uh, and um, research in the early, uh, I think maybe in the late 20th century, connected B. Traven to a... Uh, Otto Feige, a, a German academic and um, political activist who disappeared right around the time that an actor named Rhett Marut popped up, and then Rhett Marut disappeared just in time for B. Traven to pop up, mm -hmm. and uh, it's now pretty sh certain that both are the same. But uh, a reader named Olaf wrote in to say that the German version of Wikipedia not yet translated into English, apparently, has uh, links to better and more recent research. Tell us more. I guess just like their cars, the Germans have better engineered Wikipedia than we do as well. They certainly would want us to think so. Uh, it turns out that uh, in, or in 2008, a German scholar named Jan Christoph Hauschild, Hauschild mm -hmm. um, found a better paper trail that extends Feige's life all the way up to October 9th, 1907, when he tells the police he's leaving town to travel. And Hauschild was able to bring Rhett Marut back to November 8th, 1907, so less than a month thereafter, at which he pops up in his first stage production. Oh, how exciting. So we now have less than a month dividing Otto Feige's disappearance with the appearance Marut. of the actor Rhett Marut. And, uh, and we asked in the episode if Rhett Marut seemed like a reasonable Germanic name of any kind. Uh, Olaf says, to him it sounds Romanian, but in Hauschild's research, he claims that it's an anagram for a, the German for Rotet Rum, which would mean guess around. <laughs> so it could, be, it could be a little secret message. Wow. I wonder if there is anyone out there here, here's the thing about stuff like this. Do we ever see someone who actually is clever do things like this where it can be demonstrated that they were that clever? Or is it always the, the over-clever researchers 100 years later who are like, oh, it was an anagram for Catch Me If You Can? I, I'm a little skeptical about the anagram thing myself. But... I mean, the fact that it is that weird collection of letters, I don't know, maybe, maybe. All, all the, you know, as we were saying in an episode that hasn't aired yet and won't for months. So, so definitely a reference <laughs> we want to make right now and, and talk about at length. <laughs> <laughs> when, you know, when some old man comes out and, and says like, oh, you know, I was the one that married Mata Hari, uh, you never have some old man come out and say, actually, my name has been an anagram for, <laughs> <laughs> you'll never guess, for the last 60 years. Yeah, the, the various people who could be the kissing nurse in Times Square. I will only believe somebody whose name anagrams to kissing nurse kissing in Times nurse. Square. Right. She spent the intervening 50 years as Quentin something something, <laughs> just to make it more fun for us. It does make me wonder what other secrets of the universe are found on German Wikipedia. Oh, I bet German Wikipedia is a wonderland. I'm going to learn German just so I can find all the original research that should be um, stripped out of those I, I, articles. I often find myself on Wikipedia pages where I'm like, this was written by a German. I absolutely know for a fact this is it's written in English, but by a German with 98% uh, like English fluency. Just, you, can just, you can just tell. I do feel, you know... We in the you know English speaking world have this amazing uh, privilege of pretty much having everything at our fingertips. The, right. the world is our oyster midden. Yes. And yet, the other day, I was reading the English Wikipedia article on the Slavonic underworld, and was fascinated by what I was reading. I wanted to know more, only to find that all of the scrupulously cited references were all had never been translated from the original Polish. Right. I'm going to have to learn Polish if I want to know more about the Slavonic underworld. Oh, you didn't you didn't let Google Translate do the hard work for you? Well, I'd have to do get, the heavy lifting. I'd have to I'd also have to fly to Warsaw and get copies of the books and then feed oh, them right. into Google Translate. Right, right, right. Uh yeah, I guess you're right. Machine translation will help there. That's my number one least favorite thing is going to to some citation on Google and it 
and it links to an academic paper where you have to subscribe to yes. Nexus Lexus or whatever to, to be able to read it. Spe- uh. Especially if it's from an American public university where my tax dollars help pay for the <laughs> research. But no. University of Michigan Press, damn you. Uh, also, Jesse in that episode, I think the Jesse who helped us out with Liechtenstein was a bit of was a bit pedantic here. I guess we said that the IWW was the International Workers of the World, and as a moment's thought will reveal, that's a bit redundant. Oh, right, International Workers. The I is actually, I think, Industrial. Industrial the, Workers of the World. The Wobblies are the Industrial Workers of the My World. My dad would be so disappointed in me. Was he a wobbly? He was. Uh, he was wobbly adjacent. My dad yeah. was a Pinkerton. He could beat up your dad. <laughs> we also heard from Terry, a big fan of the movie of Treasure of the Sierra Madre, is annoyed that you haven't seen it, and probably even more annoyed that I didn't love it last time I watched it on TCM. Yeah. He wanted me to know about all the great cameos oh. in the movie. Uh, the uh, part of I don't know some American being annoying in town is. Uh, Director John, Ronald Reagan. <laughs> Director John Huston, actually. Oh, oh right. He, he makes cameos periodically. Well, he's very good in Chinatown. Yeah. Um, but in his own movies, he appears as well. Yeah, I think he's in the beginning of Maltese Falcon as well. The part of um, one of the um, one of the treasure hunters is an actor named Bruce Bennett. And in fact, that was a late attempt by actor Herman Bricks to get out of typecasting. He had been, he had played. Uh, he was actually a, a Olympic shot put medalist who had been a decathlete and a um, track and field star and a football star at, here at the University of Washington. Oh, yeah. Tacoma native. Circa? Mid-20s. Okay. So you probably remember cheering for the 1926 Rose Bowl winning Huskies. <laughs> Absolutely. The old pigskin. Uh, just kidding. The Huskies lost by one point to Alabama. Boo. Boo. Weird that Huskies, the Huskies were playing Alabama. Yeah, the Rose Bowl was apparently a little different in 1926. <laughs> First of all, it's weird that the Huskies were in at all. <laughs> anyway, he's a silver medalist in the shot put who, in the manner of all um, broad-shouldered white athletes of that time, went on to play Tarzan. Sure, of course, Tarzan, uh, I was going to say. Uh, but he got typecast as Tarzan and wanted to get out. And this was not something that we've ever seen typecast actors of our time, you know, uh, William Shatner or your... Uh, Roger Moore try. He just changed his name to Bruce Bennett and reappeared autophagus style as a conventional Hollywood actor. And, and, then, and it worked? It appears to have worked. I mean, he never made another movie as uh, as popular as Treasure of the Sierra Madre. But, you know, Dark Passage is a really solid uh, Bogart movie. Oh, he's in Mildred Pierce. Of all the things that I wouldn't mind being typecast as, Tarzan, Tarzan right? That's pretty good typecasting. So you think that, but then poor Sean Connery, oh, yeah. typecast as the coolest character in fiction. Go, wants to play Zardoz. He just, all he wanted <laughs> was to wear like a Borat bathing suit and play Zardoz. Uh, the other great cameo, this is the best cameo in Treasure of Sierra Madre. There's a young Mexican boy at one point. Um, played by notable non-Mexican boy and future murderer Robert Blake. Oh, really? Of Beretta fame. Yeah, he was a child actor. I knew that. Not that he was in Tre- Treasure of the Sierra Madre, but I knew he was a child actor. I remember when Robert Blake was, you know, a contemporary TV star. One thing I miss about having cable is um, just not seeing random old movies on TCM and sticking around, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that was fun, the old days. The other night I was in a I was in a little neighborhood bar picking up takeout and just as they did when it was a when you could actually go in and eat there they had tcm on with motion smoothing and it was uh you know which is kind of like hearing shakespeare in a southern accent or something right no offense the south none taken <laughs> thank you for speaking for <laughs> the south but i was just thinking it was she done him wrong with may west and i was thinking man i really miss having tcm on my dial yeah. Because you don't get old movies on the streaming services for the most part. For a while there, we were watching The Partridge Family here uh, and watching the um, – I mean, I've never seen a show that had more great cameos than The Partridge Family. Were they all musicians? No. Uh, Mark Hamill shows up <laughs> as a as a teenage boyfriend. He's on 8 is Enough. Was this pre-famous Mark Hamill? Pre-8 is Enough Mark Hamill. Wow. He, Mark Hamill was, you know, in the in the pilot for 8 is Enough mm-hmm. and then and was never in a, a season. You and I are surprising each other with how much we know about the pilot of 8 is Enough. Boy, I'll tell you. And and uh, I showed the pilot of 8 is Enough to my daughter and who was thrilled to see Mark Hamill and then when I said he didn't actually make it into the series, 
She refused to watch The Rest of Eight is Enough. Not a Grant Goodeve fan. The, and, but it turned out to be good because then I realized that all of the, uh, the first season of Eight is Enough, all the episodes were like about abortion and drug addiction and... Well, they've got five daughters, so that's five abortion um, yeah. episodes right there. I mean, it was really that era of like, family entertainment needs to start addressing real-life si- situations. And it's got a laugh track, which is funny right. for an hour show. But yeah, it's there's always some deadly serious... Um, yeah, there was a like... A cross is burning on somebody's lawn or... A kid or, committed or, suicide, yeah. <laughs> a dad has cancer. It's just like, ease up. But Partridge Family had Farrah Fawcett. Ooh. It had uh, basically, I think, all of Charlie's Angels appeared on the Partridge Family as like, yeah, you know, like cute teens. Girl coming out of bank. Charlene Tilton. <laughs> a lot of a lot of cameos. Suffice to say. Also, all the seventies ones. Like, hey, it's Milton Berle. Entry five two six dot H E one three zero four. Certificate number three nine eight five nine. Carlo Gesualdo. Or Gesualdo. What did we decide? Probably Gesualdo. Carlo Gesualdo. Yeah, it would be like... um, Gesualdo. Giacomo. Uh, The... uh, Do you... uh, Are you familiar with... uh, You you probably know the work of John Wesley Harding. Uh, Not not, not the 19th century one, the indie musician. Oh, uh, uh, Wesley Stace and I are, 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 are quite close, in fact. Oh, interesting. I've uh, I've stayed in his home many times, um, and we've toured together. Uh, probably we've played fifty shows together. Somehow, I did not know that the musician who recorded this, John Wesley Harding, was the you know, now like four time novelist Wesley, Wesley Stace. Stace of of Misfortune, right? Uh, and this was pointed out to me by a listener named Daniel, who says I enjoyed the Carlo Gesualdo show. I enjoy all the episodes. Even the one on the Duke d'Anjou and the many where John talks about an airplane for 20 minutes. Hmm. I thought 20 minutes was a very generous. Up yours. Think how, think how nice he was to say 20 minutes. Oh, I'm glad he liked Duke d'Anjou. That's, I mean, that, could, that, could, that number could have been much higher that's and, true. and funnier that's true. there. But, but we didn't mention uh, Wesley Stace on that episode. We didn't. But one of Wesley Stace's novels is the 2010 Charles Jessold Considered as a Murderer. I have it. I have it in my, in my library. So this is great. So Charles Jessold, as a moment's thought will reveal, is an anglicized version of Carlo oh, Gesualdo, and he has basically taken the story of Carlo Gesualdo's scandalous and murderous life and transplanted it to the 20th century um, British modernist music scene. So this this now reveals that I have not read all of Wesley's books, although I although I own them. Look, if you're an author who gives books to friends, you have to know the ratio is... What percentage of those books get read? Yeah, I mean, I always read the first one, but he his career as a novelist uh, has uh, really took off. You know, he was a Seattleite. Yes, and um, and we played shows together back in the nineties. I did not know you. I guess I should have known you knew each other. And then uh, he moved to New York, and just sort of in his because he's a polymath, just published this novel, uh, Misfortune, which became an international bestseller, an enormous New York Times bestseller. And then he wrote a second book, which also did. Infuriating. Absolutely infuriating. And <laughs> Nothing so, worse than a, a friend's success. So he was, you know, just a guy from around town who all of a sudden was, as a side bit, a best-selling author. I mean, if it makes you feel any better, um, writing best-selling literary fiction is not buying anybody an island or a vacation home. No, it's true. But he then went on to parlay that into a teaching gig at Princeton um, and he now lives in a, a house built in 1740 in, on the outskirts of Philadelphia, married to a wonderful woman. Two he's doing great. Yeah. He's doing great. He's a, he's a lovely man. Well, in hindsight, it's a shame that we didn't mention that he is the foremost reinterpreter of the Carlo Gesualdo story of our era. And the book sounds fantastic. Daniel recommends it because it's, it's kind of a crazy... Um, kind of conceptual boundary-pushing thing where it's a Rashomon-style retelling of this crime from many different angles, and it combines this famous Renaissance crime with um, the actual English composer scene of the early 20th century, as well as old English murder ballads. Uh, It sounds right up my alley. Wes is also uh, probably the foremost interpreter of English folk pop 
uh, like, to the like, modern age. Like what uh, you're talking about, like old ballads or like Fairport Convention? Fairport Convention versions of old ballads. Ah. His his bookshelf has hundreds of books of old English ballads, like sheet music and whatnot. Um, he does a wonderful show in New York called The Cabinet of Wonders that I recommend. It's like a variety show. He and Eugene Merman used to do it a lot, and um, it's a... It's fantastic. He is the he is the source of my anecdote about Mussolini. His father teaches in Italy, and his father was the one who explained to us that the old adage that well, at least Mus- at least the trains ran on time during the Mussolini yeah. era is actually in Italy a sarcastic remark because of course. The trains didn't run on time. Of course, like, Come on, obviously, fascism. even, you know, like, in spite of everything, also, the trains didn't run on time. It would be like saying, at least the CDC worked great under Trump. Right. And so my, the revelation that that is a, that that is a misapprehension, you know, this, like, yeah. well, the excuse for fascism that at least the trains run on time, that the entire time that was sardonic and we didn't get it. When 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 that occurred when when Wes explained that anecdote, we both sat and actually cried real tears uh, of amazement. You know, like that that, um, that it was just so, so so beautiful that we had failed as a culture utterly to appreciate the the irony of that statement. It's so so interesting that irony doesn't always make it through, and misinterpreting it can be. Even some, something small like that can be kind of devastating. Well, I'm reading the book. And oh, if, you did? No, you I, no, yeah, I'm, that, that's my plan. Oh, good. When I finish my book of Lucia Berlin short stories, and uh, I'm very excited. I, I, I commend it to listeners and his music, which is fantastic. Hat tip to Wes. Entry 1170.IS3501, certificate number 33204, Slab City. James uh, brought to our attention the greatest squatter um, architecture, architectural achievement of all time, which is the walled city of Kowloon in Hong Kong. Are you familiar with this construct? No. It's this enormous, kind of looks like something out of a Judge Dredd movie. Uh Just these gigantic, you know, uh, 10 or 12 story cement blocks, you know, because in Hong Kong, Squatters don't have the room to sprawl that you do in, where's Slab City again, Nevada? Uh, no, California, oh, so, Southern California. It's in like Mojave or something. Uh, you know, you know, Did you even listen to that show? No. Were you even on that show? No, I'm, I'm always there. I was yeah. nodding uh-huh. attentively. <laughs> Slab City's down by Coachella. Right, 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 right. Why did I think it was Nevada? Anyway, um, you don't have the room to spread out if you're a Hong Kong squatter. Real estate, the most expensive in the world. So this city went straight up and just kind of metastasized so it, it looks like this kind of blade runner dystopia with um you know and it's all self-organized so this is the street where this kind of drugs are sold and this is the street where these kind of uh counterfeit goods are sold and um you know until it was finally torn down i think in the 90s if i'm remembering right you know it's just this mass of weird pipes and self-built balconies look at a picture of the walled city of kowloon it, it, they're not um, subject to earthquakes there? No. Uh, no, not so much. Should should we do an episode on the walled city of Kowloon? I have thought about it before because I just love the look of it. <gasps> wow. Isn't that great? Wow. Are there internal spaces to that or is it just... Yeah, there's alleyways. But again, they are just as... You know, as weird and Blade Runner-like as it looks from the outside. Wow. How could they have torn that down? What a wonderful place. How could it well, be lost to time? I think it was just all the <laughs> heroin being sold there. Plus, it was political. Um, it was like an enclave for... Um, the rebellion? Yeah. Basically, basically it was, it was a, a little bit of China in the middle of British territory when it was operating. So is it... it, it so was there, a, uh, was there a Chinese Robert Moses that replaced it with... <laughs> With <laughs> a freeway? I'm actually not sure what's there now. We'll have to find out when we do the show on it. But um, Oh, yeah. I really love it. I keep thinking, you know, something like this, you look at it and you're like, okay, does that look like a favela? Or does that look like 
a really forward-thinking Scandinavian architect. Exactly. It's the kind of thing, you know, there's certain things in the, in the, even in America where it's been observed that it's only a province of the very rich or the very poor. Right. Um, I don't have an example right now, but lots of fashion choices, for example, or... If you look at... If you look at... Having like, eight, eight cars at your house. Right. <laughs> if you look at Scandinavian public housing, it often has this sort of like, oh, it's it's very organic. It's just like... 600 people all built a house on top of one another. Uh, and then it's all draped with v- moss and vines. Oh, I'm sorry that this doesn't exist because now I can't visit it. I think it's a park now. Yeah. What a bummer. Who needs a park? You know what we need is more slums. More weird squatter uh, complexes. Yeah. Oh, look, there's a picture of the park. Looks like a nice park. Entry 1409.NH0109. Certificate number 24737. The war before this one. Uh, the show was nominally, the entry was nominally about how World War I and World War II got their name, but it became kind of a freeform fantasia on how wars are named in general. What, an omnibus? An <laughs> omnibus episode? So be- odd. Became a freeform fantasia? <laughs> Just re- and also about um, kind of a jazz blues exposition in front of a festival crowd about um, how wars get considered as unitary or not. Um, for example, uh, a listener named Michael wrote in to point out that even now there are already starting to be historical references uh, of the 20th century as one big war, beginning with the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand in uh, 1914 and ending with the Berlin Wall coming down in 1989 because you really can't separate out, uh, you know, the two wars with Germany from the the fallout from that leading into, right, straight into the Cold War. Um, so you got one big war from 1914 to 1990. And the, if this is already starting now in 2021... Um, I mean, you've, you've started referencing all of the... T- 20th century as one giant war recently. So something, you know, like it, within the last few months, you've started to just kind of make a sweeping, sweeping reference to, um, yeah, beginning with the Spanish American war and ending, <laughs> ending with Grenada. Uh, yeah. The, the, the chop here in Seattle. <laughs> Does this strike you as, um, just apathy on my part? Like I no longer care enough to think about individual wars. Or- no, no. I, I love the idea. You know, I, I if you think about, I, I, you know, I read a book about the Thirty Years' War, what seems like thirty years ago now, and realizing that the Thirty Years' War was, um, was a half a dozen little wars, sure, and the Hundred Years' War yeah, wasn't three. even related to. One. <laughs> right, there were like there were like twenty years of peace in the middle. Yeah, it's not a not a Hundred Years' War, but then realizing like, oh, sure, of course, World War One and World War Two are um are contiguous right that 20 years of peace wasn't really peaceful it seems long to people of that generation or us their kids yeah. but no but what's nice about the the eternal uh war on terror is that they were very specific at the beginning like this war has no end no we were not naming the enemy <laughs> In the name of it, we're not naming a date. We're That's not going right. to pin it to any particular geography. There is no possible way to win it. Uh, you can only lose it. Terror, a thing that famously governments have been great at uh, at eradicating. So you know, the, we, we have entered. We're now twenty five years into the to the great or thirty years into the great war on terror. I like the truth in advertising. Yeah, it's going to be a three hundred year long war, uh, and you know, the mission nice accomplished banner actually meant. We did it. We set off endless war. Yeah. We and, started it uh, up. and we, you know, cheers. On behalf of Boeing and Raytheon, <laughs> we have begun our long march. Well, you know, there's a fundamental, a strain of fundamentalist religion, which is big on considering all these wars one big war because that ties in with apoc- apocalyptic thinking about the future. Right. You know, um, it, we're, we're now living in the state of endless war prophesied anciently. And that's that's where I'm coming from for sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and you, you want to imagine yourself in the end times. It's uh, it's very con- uh, complimentary. An endless war as an inevitable consequence of global mega capitalism, right? The two things 
need one another. Nothing, it, nothing stimulates uh, industrial production like endless war. Right, and con- and consumption too. Because the problem with a war that ends is you might wind up with warehouses full of extra uh, tanks and uh, gas masks. Well, that's what we saw. World War II ended and we had a wonderful bloom of consumption, but then malaise set in. And how do you combat malaise? Another war. Uh, Brian wrote in to say, uh, "This is, I've never heard this. There's a, in one historical um, convention, you consider the English Civil War, the American Revolution, and the American Civil War as the first, second, and third English Civil Wars. Not so much because of any kind of continuity of government, obviously, but because they're, they are of the same character. Each pits a, a cavalier royalist side, you know, think about the loyalists in the revolution or the sure. moneyed planters in the American Civil War, against kind of a, a dour Puritan roundhead right, side. Right, a, a mercantile... Yeah, the, like, New, the New England Yankee traders and, and congregationalists. Right. Or, and in the second war, yeah, it was literally... The abolitionists were literally their their dour New England ans- uh, descendants. Right. So there you go. That's an interesting... The Third English Civil War. Yes. Speaking of the Civil War, Michael wrote in... Go you, on. You talked about... <laughs> I'm enjoying this very you're, much. You're interested already. <laughs> you told the story about your teacher who loved talking about how the Civil War was brother against brother. Yes. So Michael suggested a possible 1980s era uh, origin... To for, this brother against brother quote? Yes. Do you remember the Time Life books TV commercials for their Civil War series? Yes. So the very first volume, the one you would get free if you, if you wrote in, was called Brother Against Brother. Call now. Relive this crucial moment in history and see how a country where brother fought brother found the strength to become one again. Hi, I'm Janet at Time Life Books. Call now and you receive your first book, Brother Against Brother, for 10 days free. So what year was that? Let me see. Judging by Janet's hair, uh, her, her uh, overly hairsprayed hair as she awaits our call at 1-800-228-8288 or whatever it was. Uh, let's see. Between 83 and 87. So it's pre-Ken Burns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the um, it's so pre-Ken Burns that the commercials have to explain to the listener that the Civil War was actually a pretty big deal. Oh, really? Yeah, here, here's how they start. They imagine, what if the Civil... Beep! Here's how they start. They imagine, what if the Civil War began today uh, and a, a, our modern Reagan-era Congress was torn by um, secessionist thinking? <sighs> Can imagine you, that. Wouldn't it be hard to imagine? <laughs> yeah. You watch it today and it's supposed to be kind of a silly, yeah, boy, yeah. what if the South Carolina delegation was... Sure. What oh, if Strom Thurmond what was if they not were, a... What if they were openly <laughs> white nationalists and wanted to walk out and kind of were always fantasizing about which side had the guns? Because that was a funny fantasy in yeah. the mid-80s. Yeah. Thank you for your order and be sure to look for your free gift. Would you like to receive a free gift too? I'll be right back to show you how. Imagine if today 11 states decided to break away. Imagine if 11 states decided to break away. So they show all these guys in 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 suits and ties, in like 80s era suits and ties. Alabama secede. And they began to pledge allegiance to a new flag. <laughs> so it's it's uh, yeah right. It, it, oh. At the time, there's some bemused, gavel banging. Uh, 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 Tip O'Neill type or something who can't imagine that Alabama and Louisiana are... Uh, God, can you imagine how naive we were? It seems very ominous to watch this uh, Time Life Books commercial today. Well, what's interesting is that the my AP history teacher would have uttered those those famous words in 1985. So right in the middle. Right in the middle. He must have, he must have taken it from the Time Life book series and we were... I guess they didn't. Uh, Time Life didn't advertise on MTV, which is where we were all focusing our attention. Yeah, why didn't they put those on during Headbangers Ball, John? That's what I want to know. It should have been called 120 minutes of alt rock and five minutes of Time Life books. Alabama succeeds. I think we also mentioned during the episode uh, that the War of 1812. Um, I don't know. I think we talked about the naming of wars that way, and uh, we heard from a. Uh, history MA who's co-editing a book about the American Revolution and related topics. And he 
he actually got in touch with his professor or had, re had recently talked to his professor about what Americans called the War of 1812 at the time. And it was not uncommon to call it Mr. Madison's War, kind of the way different sides of the Civil War would say Mr. Lincoln's War or Mr. Davis's War. But he replied, from what I've seen, people called it the War. <laughs> or, <laughs> very, that's very popular. Or the War with Britain. And as I thought about it, that I realized this is really one reason why it takes so long for these names to solidify. Because as long as the war is going on, you always just say, have you heard about the war? Right. Or, or what's, what's new with the war? The war. And we have said for many years, the war in Iraq or the war in Afghanistan. Oh, yeah. If you start two at once, you do have to think of a name right off. But those will not be the historical names for them. No one's no. going to, you know, 100 years from now, they're not going to go, the war in Iraq. Because it's going to say, which war in Iraq? Are you <laughs> right. kidding me? It's been just nothing but war in Iraq. And same problem with Afghanistan. Yeah. So, I mean, will they say the war on terror? That seems a bit, uh, a bit propagandist. No, I'm sure. What will they, what will they call it? The Bush's last, war? The last war. Uh, the, yeah, the American, the, the. Yeah, maybe it'll just be American, the, the American wars. Yeah, like, uh, the Arabian wars? I mean, Afghanistan's way uh, yeah, too far true. away. That's true. You, that's, that's one of the problems is you, there's no unifying region that includes the Middle East and the Near East. So. Well, you know, because we're not in a war with Iran, it'll, they'll be called the Sunni Wars, and then we'll, then we'll begin the Shiite Wars. Oh, that's actually... I, I, I no longer enjoy this conversation <laughs> because that's almost certainly correct. <laughs> Entry 141.IS2808, certificate number 27287, Woodstock 99. Heard a lot about Woodstock 99. Um, a lot of futurelings seem to be in the sweet spot, they thought. Age-wise. People who wanted us to do more 90s material are just, they're just bathing in it like the water is showering down on them in Mad Max. I got into a couple of, not quite arguments, but um, people who are younger than us, who wanted to say, who want to say that they are cusp Gen Xers or old millennials saying that in 99 the only people going to Woodstock 99 were Gen Xers because millennials who would have been in their teens or late teens early 20s couldn't have afforded the tickets and i was saying who do you think goes to music festivals <laughs> people in their 30s no that's like rich 18 year olds go yes there if you go to bumper shoot today that is all you will see yeah. is sixteen-year-olds, teens, and yeah, with rich parents, Bellevue halter top girls who um, whose parents bought two hundred dollars tickets. But there, the, at least two people wanted to go back and forth with me about how Limp Bizkit was a Generation X band. And I was like, under no circumstances will I accept this thesis. Somebody uh, st stood up for nineteen ninety nine because we said it was a bad year. Yeah, we we said it was like an. When was it? When was Woodstock? Ninety. Uh, no, seventy. Are you talking about? No. What? When was the disastrous? Uh, oh, ninety nine. Woodstock ninety nine. It's right in the title. Oh, was this a different episode where we were dissing nineteen ninety seven? What episode were oh, we? Oh no, I diss nineteen ninety seven all the time because I don't believe anything happened in nineteen ninety seven. It's a fake year. Somebody wrote in. I think to just defend it as the greatest year. Maybe this was on the Facebook page to defend it as like the greatest year. Uh, like a high watermark for so many indie rock bands and, and made a pretty persuasive case. Yeah. Okay. So indie rock, definitely best bell and Sebastian record, best modest mouse record, best, you know, he, he was rattling off and I don't know, uh, you're going to have some, your mileage may vary there. Well, but. so okay. Computer came out in 97. Yes. And the best radio head record. And that's a, that's a high watermark, but I don't know. I'm not so sure that I'm going to go that that distance with, I mean, pretty, pretty good early indie, but indie, indie kept growing, my friend. Perfect from now on. Yeah. That's a great built to spill record. No question. Uh, he made a pretty good case, but I can't find the email. Maybe this was a post. So the only thing that happened in 1997 was Northwest indie rock and, and some UK, <laughs> some UK assists. We, um, we also made a side reference to, uh, I think you mentioned candy bracelets coming back. Right. And yeah. We heard from a card carrying candy bracelet wearing TikTok teen. <laughs> a present teen? Who listened to the show. What, what, what is she doing with her life? 
who wanted to explain why candy bracelets are back. Um, back now? Yes. Uh, oh, okay. She explains. I want to know. Uh, she credi- I want to know. I guess I don't want to. I, 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 uh, their name is Indy, and I don't want to. I don't want to um, gender this person. So their, their actual first name is Indy. It's short for India, apparently. Oh, okay. But signed as Indy, and Indy said, um, Indy credits it to first of all the resurgence of scene culture, where um, you know different X core um, aesthetics coming back to Tumblr. Is, it, is there an MDMA connection to? Yeah, this? I would assume so. Yeah. You know. Emo, My Chemical Romance uh, getting back together at the same time. And India says, um, cosplay started to get big on TikTok. And the way to distinguish yourself as a cosplayer was to have a very distinctive style. And candy bracelets really lent themselves to a personal brand like that. And there's there's actually a very specific cosplay scene, the feral cosplay scene, Known Ooh. for its India, India tells us flashy makeup and candy bracelets all the way up the arm. Oh yeah, that's great until you start sweating and all that, <laughs> all that candy turns to to syrup. Of course, this is um, you know both these spaces are huge for just as a safe haven for different LGBTQ teen communities. And so again, this kind of unconventional gender expression that you might associate with a candy bracelet. Um, Basically, if this is actually a TikTok teen writing us the, writing this, this is actually more coherent than anything we've ever said on the show. Uh, yeah, obviously, I feel like Indy should now uh, have a podcast. Uh, I, I'm looking at uh, 1997, and <laughs> from what I can tell, the biggest thing in music in 1997 was the Spice Girls around the world. The only other things that stand out are, but this was an indie rock fan saying, "Look, I can hear the heart beating." Is one is my favorite Yellow Tango record. "Dig yeah. Me Out" is my favorite Slayer Kitty record. Yeah. "Bright in the Corner." Well, nobody's favorite pavement record is "Bright in the Corners." No, but, but you know, either or, pretty hard to beat. Okay, computer, pretty either hard or to is beat. Amazing record. I mean, so you can see the case for 1997 from an alt rock uh, retrospective point of view. Um. Another side reference in that show, we joked about how Area 52 would be one better than Area 51. Uh-huh. Um, and? Lance pointed out that Area 52 is actually a real place in uh, rural Nevada, a uh, secretive nuclear missile test range operated by... Oh, apparently we mentioned it on the White Trains show because it's operated by Sandia National Labs for nuclear missile reasons. Um and there's a popular conspiracy theory that Area 51 is to distract all the weirdos from, from where, Area 52, from where the actual uh, UFO experiments are going on. Oh, that's so much better. I really and I really hope that Area 53 is where it's really happening. We made a side reference to the fact that Woodstock's 50th anniversary went unobserved, and uh, Bryant and Tim and Melissa were among the people who pointed out that there was supposed to be a Woodstock 50. Uh, in what would that have been 2019 what happened uh it was just a fire festival style <laughs> cluster where uh you know they it, 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 it was announced for where outside it was announced for oh watkins Glen, new york right but then it had to move to i can't even remember maryland no yeah <laughs> merryweather post pavilion Oh, right. Not the record. And uh, Meriwether Post Pavilion could not possibly hold right. the number of people. And then once they shifted venues, that was within a lot of artists' blackout zones that summer. So the number of artists shrank. Right. And then they lowered it to one day. Then one of the companies that was running it went under, and or maybe one of the sponsors went under. A bunch of artists had to, you know, ideally, it was supposed to be, supposed to have all this um, holdover 1969 lineup, like... Um, a Grateful Dead successor band, a Creedence successor band, Santana, David Crosby, John Sebastian. There were going to be a whole lot of, you know, Jefferson Airplanes, um, uh, you know, the Hot Tuna successor. So there were going to be all these bands with links to 69. And then also the Killers, Imagine Dragons, Halsey, Janelle Monet, you know, kind of a right 2019 festival lineup but but like check all boxes Creedence Clearwater Revisited was going to be the the uh yeah I don't know how draw. You, I don't know how you do that do you alternate <laughs> is there a stage just for the old the one the one guy from the love and spoonful that can I'm sure can what you do climb here's stage. what you do you put them all early in the day 
Right? Right, right, right. <laughs> and then at 8 o'clock... Mom and dad can go home. Exactly. killers take the stage. Uh, but a, a series of just screw-ups led to the... Starting with the whole concept of the thing, of moving it to Maryland. <laughs> you don't think Woodstock should be in Maryland? The thing is that, you know, it's all these new Woodstocks have such a tenuous uh, connection, but to have it in, in the great state of Maryland, it feels like... It feels like there should be. It, they should have renamed it the Blue Crab Fest or something. <laughs> My favorite note we got. The only note we got from someone who actually was at Woodstock '99 was from a again uh, elder millennial ex Cusper named Samantha mm-hmm. from Central Pennsylvania mm-hmm. who convinced her parents to let her uh, head to Woodstock '99 even though she was only 15. Right, target and, audience. And her take, as you said, her takeaway. I still use that smell as a basis of comparison. And, <gasps> and Samantha now works in an OR. <laughs> so, you know, she, so when, she, when, she, she says she's used to bone saw, right. bone dust smell, burning flesh. Cysts exploding. To this day, she will say in the OR, yeah, that does smell bad, but it's nothing compared to the porta potties at Woodstock 99. And that concludes Omnibus Addenda 15. Futurelings, we thank you for your financial pledges that have made this monumental project possible. We hope that access to these important addenda items has validated your decision to support the Omnibus. It is vitally important that you attach these updates to the original recordings you discovered in their proper context for the convenience of future browsing by your civilization. We hope that our civilization survives long enough for us to provide you with future addenda to the omnibus.